Welcome to Bookaholics, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking's podcast series dedicated to books. In this series, we introduce you to some recent and relevant books, our own books, and obviously classic books that we just can't stop talking and teaching about. My name is Christoph van Houten, and in this episode of Bookaholics, it is my pleasure to be joined by Nina Power to talk about her, her latest book, What Do Men Want? Masculinity and Its Discontents, published by Alan Lane. Hello, Nina, and welcome. Hi, Christoph. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Now, Nina, as we are used here in Bookaholics, we always give the first word to the author. You wrote the book, a book that I would also even describe as a rather personal one. So who better than you to tell us what it is about and what you hope to achieve with it? Sure. Well, I think it's addressing several things at once, one of which is the increasing uh, negativity towards men as a class, um, as we see in discussions of so-called toxic masculinity and the idea that kind of uh, it's okay to hate men and this kind of increasing sort of recognition and celebration even of resentment um, between the sexes. So it's partly diagnostic. It's partly personal, as you say, in the sense that this, these kinds of generalizing discourses, I don't think accord with most women's experience of men, including my own. Mm. I would say that um, there are many good men in my life and I, I increasingly feel that this, um, it, this fact is being kind of uh, neglected, um, which I think has an overall detrimental effect on the social whole or the social good. Um, because it seems to ontologize a certain kind of um, negative being in the concept of, of men, um, which doesn't give a way out, you know, it doesn't allow men to be good if we say that they're kind of fundamentally tainted by some kind of original sin. Mm -hmm. And um, so I wanted to challenge um, that kind of generalization, which I think women have also historically been the victims of. And I wanted to almost in a Girardian way to try to stop the arrest, the spiral of resentment. <laughs> okay. uh, let me start my questioning with something that I noticed uh, with a growing surprise uh, reading uh, your book. Uh, on a number of occasions, you state, and, and maybe I could even say you urge the reader to become or be aware that she or he needs to realize that it is finally time to grow up. The reader or people should start behaving as adults, you write, or they should become mature. They shouldn't behave as toddlers. And you don't even shy away of defining our contemporary culture as a childish one that promotes infantilism. Now, I applaud your courage in writing all this, and, and obviously I tend to agree with you. But now I think I, I read two things in all of this, and, and I would ask you if I'm correct in this double reading of mine. Now, on the one hand, there is the superficial realization that our culture, that the present day of our capitalist culture we live in is indeed rather childish. And I would add that maybe, or even especially our so-called cultural wars are basically infantile. And they are also often only fought by the young, the all too young often, whereas most of the so-called older stay out of them or the sad elders that join in these wars are either politicians or as academics who refuse to grow up, but that is a whole different story. So that was the first uh, uh, point. The second one is that there's probably, or at least how I read it, there's also another attack at play 
I think, in your claims. One against what one can call a failed enlightenment. Kant called mankind to rise above its immaturity. Mm-hmm. But reading your book, but also just opening one's eyes, uh, makes one realize that ri- this, this rising seems to have failed rather direly. Am I correct in reading both these aspects in your critique of today's immaturity and in infantility, or am I reading too much in it? <laughs> no, I, I, I think I think it's there. I mean, on the infantile point, I mean, it's also a point about desire, you know, a consumer culture that says desire is good and that you should express your desire and this is who you are and this makes you yourself is obviously an arrested one in the sense that, you know, that's a stage. <laughs> um where, you know, and, and actually the important intervention or the important realization, which does involve various forms of authority and hierarchy, even if it's the, you know, uh, autonomous hierarchy, would be to say, not all desires are good, and they're certainly not all equally good, and nor should they all be indulged, mm. you know, and I, I think that's a very difficult realization um, to have in a culture that basically implies constantly that whatever you want, you should have. Um, so I think in a, it's almost like a strict sense, the, the culture is infantile in that it, 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 it kind of celebrates um, the, like the toddler-like desire, you know, and, 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 and implies that all desire is good by virtue of desire being sort of positive. And this is a kind of hangover from a certain sort of 60s idea that desire ties you to who you are as opposed to it potentially destroying who you are um you know and I, I think we have to like rethink like death drive in relation to consumer capital as well which constantly pretends that desire is always good and never bad um so there there is certainly that aspect I think it's complicated because as a species we are on the one hand neotenous um compared to other um primates we are we are profoundly immature. We are much uh, more dependent for a much longer period of time, um, even though that in practice is, is split um, across economic tensions, right? In the sense that human beings are like forced back into work, um, not to look after their own children. Mm. Um, so you actually have a kind of a strong maternal abandonment in practice. Um, in the in the name of the economy, which has all kinds of detrimental effects. So we are we are very young. We're we're this strange animal that's like riven by language and and sort of hurt by language too, um, but also saved by language in some ways. Um, so we we it it is our situation, if you like. But what what I think is interesting is to recognize that situation and in a way to kind of rise above it or to. Um, to realize that there are indeed um, uh, advantages to not indulging one's every desire. Um, and this is something that we, we seem to have failed to learn. And if we, if we start believing that uh, what children want, for example, is always right and true, um, we will, um, uh, our, our civilization will quickly end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But but so the Kantian reading I put in there is probably not present or at least not well, consciously. Yeah, I mean, I, we 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 can talk about that. I mean, I think I think my book is 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 sort of not enlightenmental in some ways because one of the things I'm stressing is, in a way, continuity of, of various forms of virtue 
right mm. implicit you know implicitly so i mean it could it, you could read the book actually as more traditionalist and i think the enlightenment in in terms of i mean it's complicated i i do i do appreciate what Kant says about self-incurred immaturity and the fact that we you know we rely on other institutions to tell us what to do and think and this is a massive problem like i'm obviously i'm very anti-institutional in the illichian sense right like i'm i'm strongly strongly critical of of the of bureaucracy institutions the the way in which human beings find themselves becoming cogs and enmeshed in certain kind of viewpoints and behaviors that are that are in fact antithetical to things like freedom and and you know in 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 the true sense right mm. you know we are we are absolutely um uh imprisoned in institutions and and this is a serious problem when those institutions become captured by bad ideas right which is always what happens yeah so so in that sense, I, I am um, on Kant's side. I do think <laughs> uh, we, we, need, we do need to escape our, you know, institution and self-incurred uh, immaturity. Um, but I also think being an adult, you know, it, well, it's like, how, how do you freely choose duty? I mean, this is a serious problem. You know, we don't even think we have any duties anymore, right? Like duties to our parents, duties, to, you know, um, to each other. So. So yeah, I mean, we could we could go through the Enlightenment if you like, but I I think I'd probably uh, prefer to um, to avoid the Enlightenment because I think it's also extremely has been extremely destructive mm. for our conception of of nature and, and our place in nature. Mm. Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, you already men mentioned uh, a person that I'm going for in my next question, and and I think there's an important ghost in your book that needs to be confronted. Uh, there's uh, a scholar that you mentioned twice in the beginning of, of your book, but I think he's extremely important for the comprehension of the totality of it. And, and mm -hmm. I'm talking about Illich, Ivan Illich, and, and that picked me like Illich a lot. And so it was a very pleasant encounter to meeting him in your book. Anyway, I think that his theorization of the two watersheds might be, I think, the key to deciphering your book. The first watershed could be the described, could be described as feminism and the repositioning, the decentering. Of the figure of the male but then the second watershed however is the one that led us to the current almost absurd blame game of masculinity that you uh, you write about is my reading of the importance of illich for your thoughts here correct and can the theory of the two watersheds indeed clarify the basic theoretical point that you're trying to make yes i think so i mean obviously the book is a is a popular book right so mm -hmm. i had it was a it was a a difficult question in the sense of how theoretical to be and how theoretical I was like allowed to be, if you mm -hmm. see what I mean. Yeah. So it, and it and it's actually, I would say, much harder to write a popular book or a book that attempts to be popular. Let's be clear, there's a difference between <laughs> writing a popular book and it and it in fact being popular. Um, but but actually compared to kind of academic writing or more theoretical writing, I, I personally think it's much, much harder to write a popular book because you're kind of writing for everybody and nobody um, you know, there isn't, there is of course an existing popular discourse, but it's actually more, much more amorphous than, mm. you know, you, you, one might think, you know, I, I, I think academics might sometimes arrogantly assume that they could always write a popular book, but not that popular writers could write an academic book, if you see what yes. I mean. Anyway, um, so, so on the elite front, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm extremely, um, um, 
in, informed by Illich, including by his his very controversial 1982 book on gender, which saw him in reality, um, you know, what we would say today is cancelled, um, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, by feminists in America. But not only there was a kind of turn against um, Illich. Um, because he was, you know, he writes this book where he talks about the invention of economic sex and he uses gender in a very unusual way, mm. uh, which neither fits with the kind of John Money use or the second wave feminist use and certainly not with today's use. Mm. Um, so he, um, he, what he wants to say is that the kind of the erosion of separate spheres um, has basically that we that we had an under, a tacit understanding, let's say, of of what we would call sexual difference, although he reserves sex for a post-economic, uh, the, the post-industrial definition. He says that in a way sex only comes about as a consequence of uh, industrial revolution, which is like quite a strange claim in a way. But, mm. but what he means is that um, the expression of sexual difference is tied to intimately to, practic to practical um, behavior, right? So that it's to do with tool use and it's to do with the way in which the world is perceived um, in this um, dualistic way, actually, mm. that, that the, you know, and that this is what is destroyed in the name of, let's say, making everybody an economic agent, not only as a, you know, as a worker and also as a consumer. Like, so, so what gets destroyed, and I agree with him here, is, is difference, you know, and mm. I think we live in an era that absolutely flattens difference. Mm. It's, it's in the interest of our economic system to destroy anything that relates to difference whether it's sexual difference whether it's difference of um opinion difference of character difference of uh i, I don't know how to put it it's like uh you know the the homogenizing tendencies of modernity are um absolute you know they're they're very uh they're very profound and so uh and actually i i think uh that if you know i, I mean these these words get thrown around a lot but I think any genuinely anti-fascist politics is predicated on the idea of the importance and the beauty of difference, mm. you know, and that what fascism is, is the homogenizing of difference um, in the name of a system. Mm. Um, at least this is one, you know, working definition that I, I would like to use. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and not only Illich's sort of, uh, if you like, defense of um, difference against the institution, but also his diagnosis of, of precisely how institutions go wrong and how, mm. you know, as he says, like the corruption of the best is, is the worst. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Endlessly. Um, and and yes. Yeah, so do, do you think that this could could this corruption of the best is the worst? Could you think that maybe this critique on on masculinity that that there was has turned a, a has gone over the hill? But that the basic critique maybe it had a point. Um, yeah, I, I I think it it's certainly um, gone too far, as it were. I think in a way that makes it renders it kind of unhelpful and you know mm -hmm. like ontologizes some mm -hmm. some supposed original sin. Um, I, you know, it, I think that the more complex point would be to do um, with this question of like heterosociality and the fact that uh, men and women exist is my opening line, <laughs> which is both banal and controversial um, <laughs> somehow, which is with the, the, the place we find ourselves in. Um, and um, I, how to, how to put it that, um, 
you know, we are, there are, there are, we are all flawed beings, right? This is in a sense, a kind of, there, there is an implicit Christian humanism in my, in my book, for sure. I, it, which again is, is, is close to Illich in some ways. Um, I think it's extremely important for any feminist project that women are not ontologized as victims. Like I make this extremely clear. Women have power. The moment we start saying that women are somehow fundamentally victims, then we give up on uh, our agency. We're back in the category of children or animals as pure innocence, um, which we are not. So I think it's extremely important to say women are capable of harm they do commit harm they can lie you know and all of these um, things because this is how we are moral agents right mm. because we we are capable of making rational moral decisions which may or may may or not be good <laughs> mm -hmm. um it's very important and so i um how to put it i think the the critique of of humanity uh generally include well has to include both men and women we could then say there are forms of negative behavior that pertain to each of the sexes right you know is that if we talk about toxic masculinity can or should we also talk about toxic femininity mm. you know i mean this would be one way of doing it i wouldn't want to proceed necessarily down this tit for tat mm. negative route right i would prefer to say well actually we can all be better and in fact, striving to be slightly better than we were yesterday is, is literally the only thing we can do. Mm. Um, so, but we have to allow, therefore, for the possibility of people to make, not only to make mistakes, but also to be good, mm. right? And, and if we say there is a category of human being that cannot be good, then we end up in an extremely potentially genocidal logic mm. in which we, we, we plant hatred in the heart of the other and thereby justify our own moral cruelty mm. by mm. suggesting that it is the other who is bad and that anything we do to them is justified. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, you already uh, anticipated this question as well. Well, the following question as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it means that we're talking about the same thing. At least that's a good thing. Yes. Now, you begin your book with a very powerful statement and uh, one that should not be underestimated. And you say that we live in a particularly paradoxical culture. And, and I think that all critical readings of today's culture indeed agree with you. Now, there is one particular paradox of today's culture that I have always considered very obnoxious. And that is also present in your book and you, you hinted at it before. And I'm talking about the combination of the low risk taking and the incredibly high rate of victimization, the love of being the victim today. I know mm -hmm. this is an incredibly tricky combination. And if you wish to talk about it, you will create victims, but that is just also the meaning of the paradox. But can you say something more about this toxic couple of low risk taking, but incredibly high rate of victimization in today's society? Yeah, I, it, is a, it is a very complicated one. And I think, you know, I was, I was talking yesterday about like this medieval idea of transcendentals and why certain terms, you know, or it's psychoanalytic or whatever, you know, why certain terms, have uh, almost like a um, a taboo meaning, which is to say that they're both kind of sacred and toxic at the same time, or whatever you know, like these, like um, and and victim would be one, right? Or it, it's you know, we we seem to live in a very complicated culture where where there are there are apparently millions of abusers, um, and 
and millions of victims, but no one is ever the abuser, right? And no one ever says, I'm the abuser, right? Mm. Yeah. Everyone is always the victim. And, you know, it's if you, there's a brilliant line in, in one of Sartre's plays where he, he says, you know, um, half victim, half accomplice, like everybody mm. else, right? Which I quote in the book, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's manifestly obvious from a moment reflection on our own life that an honest reflection on our own life that all of us have been both victim and oppressor, if you like, mm-hmm. in, in our interpersonal relationships. Um, that we are both capable of harming and of being harmed, right? And Christianity is a very clever social technology, right? Like it recognizes <laughs> this profoundly, right? Like every week you go to church and you say, forgive, forgive my trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? Mm-hmm. And lead us not into temptation and so on, right? So there's a, there's a fundamental recognition, at least in Christianity as a social technology, that we are all both victims and abusers or, you know, people who suffer and cause suffering, right? Mm. This is the nature of what it is to be, to be human in a way. So what does it mean to be in an age where like victimhood is given a, a kind of moral superiority you know again to ontologize the victim um you know and there, there's some very interesting work and in, I quote Judith Judith Schlar who talks about um actually how there is nothing good about being the victim and in fact thinking of oneself as the victim often leads to even more serious moral cruelties because again anything is justified right in, by virtue of revenge or resentment or punishment and and Mm. so on right and we know that this is these are spirals that occur Mm -hmm. constantly um and again christianity tries to very cleverly arrest the the preempt the spiral of violence by by the ultimate preemptive sacrifice you know Mm. so christ dies in advance (laughs) for our sins you know it's very clever it's extremely clever (laughs) gerard gerard points this out and others too but it's a you know it's a brilliant mechanism to to try to arrest the, the the sort of spiral of of of, um you know i don't know almost like blood feuds or or you know so you know now now we're in this kind of situation in which like the say that the the female victim you know the the female victim of the man is if you like a kind of paradigmatic figure Mm. right and this was sort of raised to great heights in the me too um Mm. uh discussion and again this is uh, a problem for like female personhood <laughs> you know because it outside of some very very extreme cases it's manifestly clear that every time we have a relationship with another human being there is a seriously high degree of ambiguity mm. um, and ambivalence and that many relationships are um in fact, bad in the sense that both parties uh, behave negatively towards one another. Um, and that this is, again, just a kind of fact of, of human um, social interaction. And I think what we ended up seeing was a lot of retrospective or retroactive redescriptions of relationships as abusive when what they were was simply mutually bad. Mm. So, and. It, it, it becomes very complicated also in an era that doesn't really recognize the reality of sexual difference, but at the same time wants to cling on to the idea mm. that somehow men are 
bad because they're stronger, because they're more violent, because they are, you know, more sexually aggressive and so on. But at the same time, doesn't want to say that there are any <laughs> differences yes. <laughs> between the sexes. So you end up with this kind of very, um, this desire for revenge, this kind of, um, you know, which can always be stoked and manipulated. Like it's a kind of, it's a political tactic, of course, right? Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche diagnoses this perfectly, you know, resentment is a very powerful force, right? Yeah. You, you know, politics politics is basically how do you manipulate people's resentment and how do you manipulate their desire you know so I, I think you know we have to we have to step back whenever there is resentment and say what is this you know where is this coming from who is benefiting from it and what would actually happen if let's say the, the victim in inverted commas actually performed whatever act they would like to as an act of revenge you know and we all feel revenge right we all feel resentment at times right again this is like a feature of our psychic and social makeup um but but it seems clear to me that that we have to not only diagnose this and ask who benefits from resentment and <clears throat> again what other divisions are being covered up like it's clear that for example discussions of class have disappeared in recent years to be replaced by these very divisive discussions around sex, race, mm. gender, and so on, right? Mm. It's obvious that um, uh, the system or the structure itself is not troubled by these discussions. In fact, it uses them opportunistically. Mm. Um, so also because it gives a lot of power. So if you have more tinier groups that all aim for power, again, it, instead of a couple of groups that aim for power and bigger groups, then you obviously it's it's easier to divide and conquer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, divide and conquer. And also I talk in the book about this idea of a zero sum game. Mm. You know, if, if your image of the world is one of limited resources, right, in which we're all competing and, you know, there's only a small amount of attention to go around or suffering to go around, whatever, um, you end up in this kind of actually like devastating arms race for those things. But this is a presupposition, which is not um, not true, in fact, you know, and I, I, I there's there's probably a very faint Bataillean <laughs> aspect of the book, which I couldn't really go into any much detail. But, you know, there are there are obviously different ways of, of thinking about economy as such, mm. you know, you can have an excessive economy, you can have a, an, an economy of excess in which actually the problem is surplus, mm -hmm. not lack, not lack, yeah. you know, but we are kind of in a way conditioned to think of, let's say, uh, if one group um, advances somehow socially, then another group must lose, you know, which is the zero sum mm -hmm. model, um, which I also wanted to, to sort of um, get away from. Mm. Yeah, thanks. Now, in, in conclusion, if I get it right, I think the scope of, of your book is to bring back uh, what is only apparently a paradox, although ironically, it seems to be only the only real paradox that can't be overcome for us today. And, and that is of bringing back uh, of, of a serious and, and a graceful playfulness between mm. the two sexes, because yes, uh, you also want to return to the sexes, as you already said, rather than to stick to the exhausting and exhausted concept of gender. And and that overcoming of uh, these this this uh, of this retrenchment of stereotypes that disable any form of destabilizing of the oh so comfortable niche identities into which we all cozily uh, have been encapsulated. 
there indeed still exists, I think is, is your uh, main point of, of the possibility that women and men, women and women and men and men, pretty much all of us together can indeed interact and even enjoy each other outside the realm of, sorry for my French, of fucking. And this might be in a serious way, in a playful way, in a sexy way, and in all kinds of respectful and even friendly and uh, friendships ways. Is that correct, my reading? Yes, no, I, I, absolutely, definitely. Uh, you know, I think I think it's interesting to go back to the infantile infantilism discussion. It's like actually, what I'm defending is kind of adult playfulness, right? Yes. But this isn't. But this isn't uh, the play of the child in the same way, right? Like it's a, it's a recognition of a capacity, you know, that we can only have paradoxically as adults. Mm. It, you know, in a strange way, it's like, uh, yeah. So and and also, I think this kind of um, yeah, this graceful playful playfulness, which I which I take from Illich, who takes it mm -hmm. from Augustine and Aquinas, and you know, um, this idea of eutropelia is like um, it's it's a it's a kind of I don't know, like a knowing recognition of something like difference without being reduced to something like identity, right? It's mm -hmm. like you know what it means to play with the the fact of who we are, right? Is is in a way also to kind of um, to to acknowledge that we 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 know who and what we are but mm. in a way that's kind of light-hearted you mm. know that we don't that we don't take ourselves too seriously ultimately <laughs> you know because because so much of who we are is not chosen mm. apart from anything else you know we we i think some of the identity logic is is a sort of desperate attempt to get away from fate you know mm. we we have a culture that that cannot that doesn't really have a tragic aspect you know that is is pure positivity it's pure transparency you know that we we cannot we cannot bear the the idea that we haven't chosen something you know but we haven't chosen anything we didn't choose to be born we didn't choose our sex you know it's like we we're like thrown into the world it is absolutely absurd you know the the best we can do is is maybe to sort of yeah to 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 respond in a in a playful way to mm. things that are beyond our control, mm. you know, and 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 to sort of um, find a sort of collective joy in mm. those in those forms mm. of fate. Yeah. But but this is very far from our from our culture as it currently stands, you know, with its absolute obsession. And I think um, Han, you know, the philosopher is fantastic mm -hmm. on these, mm. you know, these these um, subjective transformations and the you know the limits and the pain fullness of, of positivity and transparency and you know Baudrillard before him mm. uh, you know this this uh, <laughs> the, the, the the achievement subject for example you know the idea that we are here simply to uh, uh get garner status in some horrible gamified you know sort of uh thing you know mm. which doesn't allow for any room for play and I and I think it's not surprising therefore that we have a an increasingly um authoritarian workplace structure mm. whereby any form of interaction which isn't coded is perceived to be extremely dangerous mm. you know like people used to meet their spouses at work mm -hmm. and now if you even look at somebody else it's like in some companies you will be fucking fired for your you know egregious um you know harassment or whatever you know it's, it's absolutely deranged so mm. Uh, yes, I, I think you. I think you've got you've got my point anyway. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good, good for me. Um, thanks for this uh, lovely conversation, Nina. And for all those who uh, want to have a closer look 
And in his book, it is called What Do Men Want? Masculinity and Its Discontents, published by Alan Lane. So thanks for talking to me, uh, Nina, about your lovely book. No, thank you for your clever questions, Christoph. <laughs> thanks also to uh, our listeners for having joined us once again here at Picked Voices. And you, dear listeners, if you like our volunteer work here at Picked, you can now also consider supporting us by becoming an active member of our institution. For more information about how to join Picked, please visit our website. And if you, uh, listener, uh, want to contribute to this series dedicated to books, or maybe by proposing a recent book, or even simply by recording your own episode of Bookaholics, please do get in touch. My name is Christoph van Harte. Thank you, and bye. Thank you.